some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is God's word. You may be seated. Please keep your Bibles open to Luke chapter 18. <clears throat> and uh, inside of the announcement sheet, our bulletin, you're going to find a, an outline that you can use as we go through this study this morning. And while you're getting your Bible open and that outline ready to, to take some notes, just a reminder that uh, tomorrow morning our mission team uh, from uh, Taiwan is going to be boarding a plane and heading back to the United States. So we want to remember uh, Eric and, and Jason and Moriah and Haley in our prayers as they, they travel back weary and tired. Uh, Eric uh, sent yesterday uh, or last night a, a pretty lengthy email, and uh, it sounds like they just had a, a, a fabulous ministry and, and time of, of sharing their faith in, in that country. And uh, we want to be praying for their safe return to, uh, to us and to their family. And then uh, later today, Cody and the teens, as you know, have been in Monday, Texas on a mission trip. And they've been sharing their faith and conducting a vacation Bible school in Monday and uh, working with the church there in Monday to, uh, to, to, uh, uh, to share the gospel in that town. And they're going to be uh, winding things up today and heading back to San Antonio. And we want to remember them in our prayer as well. And so before we uh, get into Luke chapter 18, let's, let's ask God to bless us and to bless these folks. Father, as we've been singing, we love you with so much of our heart and soul and mind and strength. You are at the center of all things and You bless us and we pray for Your help to love You even more deeply and profoundly in this life. You bless us and You take away our sin. You, through Your Spirit, pour Your love into our hearts in such a way that when we, we are quiet and mindful of that truth, Father, we are overwhelmed by the sense of that love that You have, have, have so abundantly brought into our life. And we think about how all of that changes us, how, how the Gospel not only changes everything, but primarily it changes us. And we pray that as we contemplate it and think about it, and especially in light of this parable, and You giving us eyes to see it and ears to hear it, that all of that will uh, just become a natural part of the way that we think and interact with other people in light of the Gospel in this world, in this age, in this city. So bless us this way, Father. And we ask it all in the name of Jesus and all the church said. Ellen and I watch a lot of Masterpiece Theater on Sunday nights after church. Uh, recently we've been watching uh, the latest version of the Poldark uh, series based on the novels by, by Winston Graham. 
And if you're not familiar with the story, uh, Ross Poldark is a British soldier and a captain, newly arrived back home after fighting in the American Revolutionary War. He arrives back in England to Cornwall, find his father dead, his family property in shambles, and the love of his life engaged to marry his cousin. He uh, takes it all in and takes a deep breath. And he picks up the pieces of his life and he gets back to work restoring the family property. And in the meantime, he does something that is incredibly, something that is unbelievably unthinkable in his day and age. And that is he marries someone who is considered to be below his station. He marries his kitchen cook, a woman by the name of Demelza. She is beautiful and clever and hardworking and kind, but she's from the other side of the tracks. And it creates sort of a gossipy scandal among the landed gentry in Cornwall. And one day, Demelza is asked by her new friend and Ross Poldark's first cousin, a, a, a very kind young woman by the name of Verity, if Demelza loves Poldark. And she says, yes, she loves him with all of her heart, but she does not think that that is a word she will ever hear from Poldark to describe the feelings that he has in his heart for her. How could someone in his station love somebody from her station? At the same time, she begins to take a lot of heat from most of the upper class women that she begins to interact with as Poldark's wife. A lot of heat. They're very condescending. They're very patronizing and sometimes downright insulting and mean to her. And so one night, distraught at the idea that she will never be accepted, that she will never be embraced, that she will never be uh, approved, in that moment of despair, she asks Poldark, why in the world did you marry me? And then she sits and earnestly waits and listens to his answer. And he says uh, a couple of joking things, but then he realizes that she is absolutely serious and wanting to know the answer to that question. Why in the world did you marry someone like me? And he says... I am your servant, and I love you with all of my heart. And those three simple words, I love you, melted her in that moment. And that's all it took to completely transform her, and it changed this servant girl into a lady of the estate, a lady of the manor. Now, as I, I, I thought about that scene, there were at least a couple of thoughts that began to run through my mind. The first is, when we watch that scene and we see the interaction between those two people, which of those characters do we identify with? The captain who seems to have everything going his way or the servant girl, the lower class kitchen servant who's in search of someone to love her? And then the second thought is, is really more of, a, of, a, of an epiphany of sorts. That The second thought was this. You know, life-changing love can come to anyone. Life-changing love can come to anyone which brings us to this parable, uh, which is about two people, two men, and it has two prayers, but it's really about one need. The assumption of this parable is that people, human beings in general, desire to be righteous. Now, that's not a word that people use much these days. It's a bit antiquated, sounds judgmental, sounds stuffy, sounds a little stiff. About, really, the last time that I remember hearing it in popular culture was uh, back in the late 1980s a movie with uh, Matthew Broderick, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Uh, he's a character in the, in the movie. 
The, the principal is trying to, to get him expelled out of school. He's talking to the assistant principal's secretary, and she names all of these subcultures that really like Ferris, and she goes, they all adore him. They think he's a righteous dude. But that's not the normal way that we think about that word in this culture. In the Old Testament, the word Zedek, and in the New Testament, the word Dikaios are multidimensional words. They mean all kinds of things. But when you get them boiled right down to the very essence, the, the words mean doing what is right in covenant or doing what is right in relationship or doing what is right by others. I would suggest that if we think about it just, just a half step more deeply, that what we begin to see happen in the word righteousness is that it's really a word about being approved. It's a word that deals with, with being acceptable. It deals with being embraced fully by another human being. Now, what prompts this parable is that Jesus is surrounded by people who have this legitimate desire to be righteous. They want to be accepted. They want to be approved. They want to be uh, uh, embraced by God. But many of them are going about it the wrong way. And because they're going about it the wrong way, they're never going to find it. And in Jesus' mind, this will not do. This will not do. And so in this parable, we see a wrong path and a right path to righteousness and it begins with the scene, the public worship at the temple. You know, one of the differences between our time and the first century is that we tend to think of real prayer as something that we do in private and not in public. Prayer is, is what I do when I'm by myself, when I'm in the car, when I'm in the office by myself, when I'm on a private walk with a dog. That public prayers, on the other hand, are to get an event kick-started or to give it a hard stop. It's time for us to have our closing prayer. Let us bow our heads. Let us pray. Not so during the time of Jesus. Not so during the time of Jesus. There were private prayers. In Mark chapter 1, we have the eremos, which is uh, uh, the word in, in, in Greek that describes the solitary place. That Jesus in Mark chapter 1, early in the morning, while, before it was light, while it was still dark, goes to the eremos, or to the solitary place, in order to pray. But prayer was also a big group public event. When you go to Luke's Gospel, the very first chapter, while Zechariah goes into the holy place to burn incense, what's going on outside? Look at verse 10. All the assembled worshipers were doing what outside? They were praying. When Jesus gets angry with all of the commerce that is corrupting the worship of God at the temple, what does He refer to the temple as? He says in Matthew chapter 21, My house will be called a house of what? And he's quoting uh, Jeremiah 31 and, and Isaiah 56. What Jesus does is to use as a backdrop to this parable the place where human beings go to meet God, that is the temple, at a time when people go to that place to interact with God, a time of prayer. And out of that multitude of people, Jesus asked His listeners to consider two individuals who have gone to meet God. Character number one is the Pharisee. The Pharisee. Now, Pharisees, they get a lot of bad press. Some of it, quite frankly, is deserved. But for the most part, the Pharisee is the guy that you want to have as your next-door neighbor. He's the guy that you want to have in the neighborhood. His lawn is always mowed Trash can never left on the street. Hedges trimmed. Comes over, sprays Roundup on your weeds. When he opens up his garage, the, the garage is organized. Doesn't look like a pawn shop. The Pharisee looks great on paper, but 
But Jesus sees a flaw. There is an overabundance of confidence in looking the part, in looking good. There's an overemphasis on the externals. And so, let me, let me give you a couple of observations out of this parable on this particular character. character. Number one, he is aloof. In verse 11, it says very carefully, Jesus says, he stands off by himself. The reason for that is the Pharisee philosophy. The Pharisee philosophy was don't rub shoulders with someone who might make you unclean. And to do that, they put people in categories. But don't rub shoulders with someone who is going to make you impure, who's going to make you unclean. Now, you'll remember as well as I do that one of the ways that Jesus frustrated the Pharisees over and over again was his insistence of eating and hanging out with the people, the very people that the Pharisees would never be caught dead in a million years living with, let alone interacting with. We find in Mark chapter 2, verse 16, when the teachers of the law who were what? Who were what? Pharisees saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors. They asked his disciples... Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Not only is he aloof, but he's also self-absorbed. He, think about his prayer for a minute. His prayer is sad. His prayer is sad. There is no thankfulness for blessings that have come to him by the power and the uh, benevolence of God. There are no requests that are based in trust and faith and the power of the benevolence of God to provide for him on a daily basis, his prayer degenerates into sort of a self-advertisement. Uh, uh, I thank you, God, that I'm not like all of these, these, and then he begins to categorize people, that I'm not like them. I mean, imagine, I mean, how many of you uh, would, would anticipate a prayer of thankfulness, at least begins in thankfulness, degenerating into that? I mean, think of it this way. I, you know, Ellen and I are going to, uh, to be celebrating a, a wedding anniversary uh, in the future. And suppose on the day of our anniversary, we invite uh, you know, everybody to come to our house or to come to the place we designate to, to enjoy the cake and, and to uh, don't bring presents. Just, just your presence is the only present that we need. You know, one of those kinds of, of affairs. And then you know, we're, we're so taken back by the number of people that show up that you know, Ben Bailey, who shows up, I go, you know, I just want to thank Ben and send him a card of thankfulness and gratitude for coming to, the, for coming to our anniversary party. And I write the letter like this. Dear Ben, I thank you that I'm not like other husbands who never come home from work, and when they do, they bury their nose in the paper, or they become obsessed with sports on TV. I thank you, Ben, that I'm not like that at all. I am so grateful that you were able to come because I meet all of my wife's emotional needs. She is so blessed to be married to me. Signed, your humble servant, Mark. The prayer is self-absorbed. The focus is on self. The, the thankfulness is just the camouflage. It's the disguise to make it sound like a prayer. So he's aloof and he's self-absorbed, but he's also a spiritual elitist. Being a spiritual elitist does not mean you necessarily have any profound theological insights. For this particular Pharisee, sin is what? Sin is a discreet external act. He does not mention in his prayer anything about character, his thought life, the purity of his heart. None of those things get mentioned. Maybe none of those things are his concern. But his grid for spiritual winsomeness is very much on the surface. 
Being a spiritual elitist means that you emphasize that you emphasize the vices that you don't struggle with. He says, you know what? I'm glad I'm not this rogue, this 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 wicked cheater, or even this this tax collector. Just for the record, by the way, those are kind of bad things to stay away from. But he's comparing. Notice what he does. It's so subtle. He's comparing what's best about himself with what's worst in other people. And that's why he misses the point that it's really about his heart. Being a spiritual elitist means that you emphasize the virtues where you excel. He says, I give a tithe. I give a tithe. I fast twice a week. And there he sort of does something a bit ironic here. You know, this fasting twice a week was never a command in the Old Testament. There was a command to fast on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And by the time of Jesus, it had sort of settled down into fasting twice a week, but it was never a command. But what this Pharisee has done is endow it with the super spiritual significance that elevates it to the place where it imbues him with what he thinks is an irresistible righteousness that God is not going to be able to resist. God, I'm not like all of these bad people over here. In fact, think of all of these good things I do. Aren't you glad that I'm on your side? And you know what it does in the end? It makes him look down on other people. He looks down on others. Confident in his own righteousness, he looks down on others. And in this Pharisee, Jesus is illustrating how the kingdom of God does not work. This Pharisee is not on a path that will take him to the righteousness that he desires. The wrong path is self-generated righteousness. That's the wrong path, which brings us to character number two, the tax collector. Now, quite frankly, when you read this parable, and you kind of, if you've read it a couple of times, you know where he's headed with it, it's really easy to idealize or to romanticize this tax collector, that he's sort of this gentle Joe the, the, the good-hearted bartender. You know, that's the kind of individual that he is. Not true at all. Not in the least. In the time of Jesus, the rate of taxation was one of the core reasons that there was tremendous financial hardship on so many people that they had to endure poverty and a lot of times uh, a, a lot of anxiety about not having the means to support themselves during that first century A.D. But more than that, the tax collectors were considered to be traitors. Israel's idea of a perfect world was Israel as a great nation, a superpower, maybe the superpower in the entire world, with God at the head. But the reality was Rome was the controlling power and the one putting families at financial risk. And the tax collectors were collaborating with the enemy. The tax collectors were responsible to raise a certain amount of capital to meet Rome's demands, and then they were going to live on the rest. And Israel's massive losses financially were the tax collectors' massive gains. And they were seen as traitors. Tax collectors were collaborating with the enemy. Now, you know, taxes are just sort of an inevitability in life. We all pay taxes. But to get an idea of sort of the angst or or the feeling towards tax collectors that ancient Israel had during this period of time, think back to the end of World War II. And all of a sudden you have the Nazis being beaten back out of all of these nations in Western Europe. What happened 
to the Nazi collaborators and sympathizers in places like Belgium and France and Luxembourg at the end of World War II. They, they were punished for collaborating and sympathizing with the enemy. And at the end of World War II, at the, the, the 1944 and 1945, as, there, as Nazi Germany is being pushed back into Germany and out of these Western European nations, the sympathizers and the collaborators were punished. They were traitors. Now this tax collector, with, with all of that baggage, comes to the public worship of God's people at the temple at the time when they are interacting with God in prayer. Just a couple of observations. This tax collector is humble and broken. Jesus says that the tax collector comes and stands at a distance. The Pharisee stands by himself. The tax collector stands at a distance. Now, it's, it's, it's different from that Pharisee because the Pharisee doesn't want anyone to be near him. Why? The Pharisee philosophy, if anybody who's unclean or impure that stands next to me or rubs shoulders with me or I rub elbows with is going to make me unclean. I'm going to stand by myself. The tax collector stands at a distance and bows his head because he doesn't know if he belongs or not. What he does know is that he's a pariah in that community and in that culture and in that nation. He goes to this place with the interaction with God at the place where God is met and he wonders if he's going to be welcomed. Stands at a distance. And he beats his chest. Alfred Eidersheim, who has written extensively, sort of a generation past, uh, is written extensively about what it was like uh, to live in, in Israel and the Mediterranean world during the time of Jesus. And one of the things that he writes is that a common cultural expression of sorrow among men was to look down and fold the hands across the chest. This is not enough of an expression of grief and anguish for this tax collector. He begins to beat his chest. And he says, Oh God. And not only is he humble and broken, but he recognizes his own spiritual poverty. Two very, I think, very profound things here. First, uh, sometimes the translations are not quite as accurate as we would like them to be. In the original language, he's not saying, Have mercy on me, a sinner. He is saying, Have mercy on me, the sinner. The definite article is there. Why does he say this? And why, for that matter, does Paul refer to himself as the chief or the, the greatest of sinners when he writes later on to the church? It's not because he's comparing himself to other people like this, this, this Pharisee has done. What he's doing is expressing what he sees of himself in light of the presence of God. He is seeing himself in light of God. I am, in light of who you are, God, in all of your holiness, the sinner. I mean, we know what that's like. I had a, a, you know, two German shepherds ago, uh, and, and you learn so much from dogs. It's uncanny sometimes. Uh, our, our German shepherd, Daisy, it had been a rainy day, uh, so this tells you how long ago it was. 
Uh, it was a long time ago. We had a rainy day here in San Antonio, and we got home from church, and it had been a great day, and we get home and we're talking and laughing and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Jesse and Jordan, still children living in the house at that time, and we let the dog out, and the dog goes running right through the mud, and I was not thinking. I was happy about the morning. I was not thinking, and I let the dog in, and the dog is so excited that the master is home, and, and his the, the, the pack is home, and the dog comes running into the house and runs right over the white couch, over the white fireplace, over the white rug, over the, you know, and you get the idea, and I got angry. And what I did was I, you know, I, I, I got after that dog. And you know what the dog did? It broke my heart. I'm sitting on the, on the hearth and just thinking, man, I, you know, we've got to clean all this stuff up. And that German shepherd walked over and sat down and stuck its nose in my armpit. We know what that's like, right? You ever done something that you can't even believe that you've done it? And you just know how wrong it really is, not only in your own heart and in the eyes of all of the people that you love, but especially in God's eyes. And you can't even raise your head when you pray to Him. Heads down. He's comparing Himself not to other people. Comparing Himself to God. And then the second thing he he recognizes is that the cure that he needs is not within himself. And people that are broken and people that are humble usually recognize this, this fact very clearly. He says, literally, make atonement for me, the sinner. The word that he uses there that is translated mercy is not the typical word for mercy, but a word that is associated with atonement and the forgiveness of sins. He says, I'm the sinner before you, God. Make atonement for me. And Jesus says the tax collector who is a pariah in that nation, that culture, that community, in that spot, in that time, is the one who goes home justified. Jesus one day said the most audacious thing to people who thought that their religious behavior was what got them chummy with God. At the end of His ministry, as He is right before the crucifixion, trying to convince people to see Him clearly for who He is and what it means to come into the kingdom of God and to avoid judgment. He says, Truly I tell you, The tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. That is, those who are broken and humble and know that the power to save themselves is not within themselves. The right path, my friends, is the Christ-generated grace. Two more observations. We are the church of Christ, not the club of Christ. I don't think Jesus cares what a broken, humbled human being looks like, smells like, the color of their skin, the money in their bank, 50 tattoos or no uh, tattoos, old or young, who are beating their chest and searching for the cure to what's wrong in their soul, and neither should we. Saying welcome 
in the place where we come to meet God and to interact with God is not saying the same thing as you're perfect or you're saved. But it's saying, you know what? We are all in the right place. It's about interacting with God and coming into God's presence. And then the second thing that I would say is the church is the beacon of grace in the community. Ever notice how all kinds of people flock to Jesus? All kinds of people flocked to Him. Heard He was coming to town, would line the streets, would, would fill the porch, would fill the courtyard, in multitudes would fall him out in the wilderness, forget about the food, we've got to go listen to Him speak. He would, he, would, he would collect tax collectors and prostitutes and people that were known sinners and children and women and men and Jews and non-Jews, all of them in darkness, moving to the light, the presence of Jesus in the world. And they saw the splendor and the beauty of His life and in His words, heard the love in His heart, and they wanted that. They wanted it even if it meant profound repentance and life change. To be accepted by Him. And to know His approval. And to count on His embrace. To them, that was worth changing your life in order to enter into. You know, if there was a a, a takeaway line from last week's sermon, when we were talking and thinking about being a fisher of men, if there was a, a takeaway line from last week's sermon, I hope it's this. That humans flourish in the presence of the King. That humans flourish in the presence of the King. And if there is one this week, it would be the very first one. That life-changing love can come to anyone. And that's what we offer right now. An invitation to know that love, not just intellectually or abstractly as some kind of 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 an intellectual construct, but to know it intimately and to know it personally and to know it deep, 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 deep down in the recesses of your heart and soul where you really live. And as Ben leads us in a song right now, we're going to have some of our shepherds down here at the front. And if there are ways that we can help you connect to that love, to connect to God's kingdom, to connect to Christ through Christ's cross and His grace, then we want you to come down and respond to this invitation by speaking to these shepherds. And for the rest of us, let's praise God with all that we have within us. Let's stand and sing. Deeper than the ocean and wider than the sea is the grace of